Right, we're progressing in Luke's Gospel to chapter 16. I actually ministered on this this um, this parable up in Whiteley two weeks ago because I didn't want to have to prepare two sermons. You know how it is. Um, but it just struck me what a, an interesting parable it is. And I thought I could sort of more or less get away with preaching the same sort of thing for the second time. But when I come to look at it a second time, I see different things in it. <laughs> and listening to Paul, of course, Paul Young, who spoke last week, and dear Alan, who spoke on the first couple of parables that Jesus gives in chapter 15, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the lost son. And if there's a key verse in chapter 15 that speaks to us, it must be where Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that is really the key, isn't it, of those three parables that we're told in chapter 15. And looking through the Gospel of Luke, it it strikes me that to this point in time, in the main, Jesus has been giving stories, parables, to generally the religious leaders, perhaps as one-off people or groups of people, if there were the Pharisees gathered together. But in chapter 16, we see a different emphasis coming in, where to a greater extent, he's speaking to the disciples. So Jesus has a slightly different audience here. I don't know if you can imagine that. It's a bit like a preacher. He's speaking to an audience, some of whom are profoundly committed to him and radical on his behalf. And the others of whom are profoundly against him because the Pharisees are still around. (laughs) And who are opposed to just about everything he says and does. So Jesus is here addressing both groups of people. And it strikes me that that can't be particularly easy. (laughs) You know, I've got a nice group this morning. (laughs) Who basically will be sympathetic to what I'm putting across. It wasn't like that for the Lord, was it? By any means. And this parable is so different. You could compare it, if you like, to those three we just looked at in previous weeks, in chapter 15. This one is so different. And that thought strikes me as I read it. So let's just read through and let the word of God speak to us. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, Oh, what what shall I do now? My master's taking my job away. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, he says. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one 
of his master's debtors. He asks the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager tells him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asks the second, And how much do you owe me? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Well, he tells him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, it's this section that usually gets us a bit, isn't it? The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little uh, can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So there we have the parable. So Jesus, as we saw at the beginning, he's speaking to the disciples. And he gives them an example, if you like, from the world as to how people can tend to deal with one another in what we might think of as being secular situations. And, and I, I, th- I thought I could see three areas in, in, in this parable that the Lord is, is dealing with in the way that he's seeking to enlighten the disciples because he's preparing them for the time when he goes back to heaven when after his ascension and the Spirit comes. He's preparing them to take his mission forward, isn't he? So he's preparing them for that. He's pouring light into them and he's seeking to impart the nature of his Spirit to them. And he's doing that in measure here. But he's also dealing with the Pharisees who are listening. (laughs) And that's why I find this parable so interesting. And it struck me that he's bringing across that in the world or anywhere that's not in the kingdom of God, which is the world, isn't it? In the world, outside the kingdom of God, there's a lack of integrity. There's a lack of honesty. He's saying in the world or outside the kingdom of God, there's a lack of repentance. Which is the same theme, of course, as chapter 50. When one sinner repents. (laughs) But Jesus is saying here, without using the word repentance, 
in spite of this lack of honesty that's in the world, there's a lack of repentance. Because it's only through the kindness of God that a person repents. I take it here this morning that we've all repented on a pretty frequent basis at the hand of God. <laughs> if, if anybody hasn't, let me know. <laughs> because it's the kindness of God that does that. And Jesus says, in the world... There's a lack of integrity. In the world, there's a lack of repentance and in, which, which deals with that lack of integrity because there's no way my heart can change unless God changes it. We're all trying to be good and do good things these days, aren't we? Joel was telling me earlier about running marathons and stuff. We all want to run marathons for good causes. People want into good causes, aren't they? But look, if they're not done with that sense of the goodness of God and the direction of God and the mercy of God and the opportunities he gives us, if they're done in our own flesh life, as we just touched on, they can produce nothing for the kingdom, good as we might try and be. So Jesus is teaching on these things. There's a lack of integrity. There's a lack of repentance in the world which can only turn my lack of integrity into a heart for God, which, which, which transforms me. There's a lack of repentance. And there's a lack of worship, which makes my repentance real. And which gives me the ability to make it good in my life. And I can see these things in this parable. I couldn't see any of this two weeks ago. <laughs> it's frustrating, isn't it? There's a lack of integrity, which is obvious in the story Jesus gives. Look at it in a sec. There's a lack of repentance and there's a lack of worship. And he's saying these things for the disciples to take them forward in their understanding of him. And he's saying those things to the Pharisees to provoke them. Not negatively. I mean, there might be a Nicodemus amongst the Pharisees who's listening and who's taking sin. The, most of them are just hating what Jesus is saying and they're closed. But there might be the odd one or two and Jesus is there and he's digging in, he's digging in, he digs in in the spirit. He digs into me in the spirit, doesn't he? You? He digs into me in a way that nobody else can. So there's a lack of integrity, a lack of honesty. And it's obvious here. Jesus seems to take us into a situation which already exists between these two, the boss and his manager. Because the boss is saying, right, you can't be my manager any longer. We're right into the situation. They haven't had a discussion about it. They haven't been talking about it. Jesus takes us right in there. The boss is had enough. I'm giving you a bit Alan Sugarish, you know, I'm giving you the sack. And the manager doesn't plead his case. He takes it for granted that he's getting the sack, doesn't he? What shall I do now? He's taking my job away. I'm losing my job. I can't do anything else. I know what I'll do. It seems as if he's going to lose his house as well. So that the people are going to welcome me into their houses. I know what I'll do. I'll carry a bit of favour here. I'll manipulate people a little bit. A little bit more dishonesty. You know, it doesn't change his behaviour. 
The fact that he's losing his job because he's been accused of manipulating his boss's books does not change his behaviour. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? So he knows what he's going to do. He's got to curry favour with the boss's clients. How much do you owe him? 800 gallons. Oh, halve it. That's all you need to pay. And the second, how much do you owe him? Oh, 1,000 bushels. Make it 800. I'll knock off. What's that, 20%? (laughs) But he can't, that's, and we can see both those things there, the points I was making to you. There's a lack of honesty going on here. This is just an example that Jesus gives from secular living. This is how people go on in the world. I mean, how far can we trust people in the work situation? Not easy. So, he's going to lose his job. And he's going to curry favour with the boss's clients in order that they'll welcome him into their homes. And he's going to reduce the money which they pay to the boss by um, reducing the invoices that um, they're due to pay. So this is the statement that gets us a little bit, isn't it? The master commends the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. (laughs) But Jesus then begins to come in, I think, here in a remarkable way. He explains why the master made this commendation. He says the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind. In other words, the manager who has been desperately trying to survive in this threat to his own lifestyle, he is shrewd in what he does. He's not just you know, given up. He's not gone into self-pity. But he's done his best to manipulate people to give him favour. And the boss can actually see, well, at least he's trying. He might not like it, but there's a sort of commendation that he gives him for trying to survive in the threat that uh, he's now under. He's doing his best in a, in, a, in a way. I don't know how much he was going to reduce his redundancy pay because <laughs> he's, he's, um, he's not receiving nearly as much from his customers as he should have done. But Jesus says that there is a shrewdness here in the way this man is dealing with his situation. And they're more shrewd, the people of this world, in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. In other words, the possessions that God gives us to use in his name, often we can struggle to know how to do that. So I read that. We can actually struggle to know how to use the possessions that he gives us. Which I think Jesus is driving at here. He's trying to speak into the disciples at this point, you see. And this is his advice to the disciples. I tell you, use worldly wealth 
to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, if you've got an authorised version or a new King James, I noticed that when it says worldly wealth, it uses the phrase unrighteous mammon. Now, that I find that translation more difficult and I like worldly wealth because we all need a measure of, of, of wealth, if you like, in which to live, don't we? You know, we need to have a little bit of a financial resource, at least. <laughs> if, if we're not going to be living at subsistence level. And the Lord's not again that, it seems to me. But he is against unrighteous mammon. <laughs> so, so I struggled with that. I think as we go down, we can understand the parable a little bit more. So bear with me a little bit. But let's just leave it at worldly wealth. Because Jesus is saying, if you've got worldly wealth, use it to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, in other words, I brought nothing in, Job, I take nothing out. (laughs) I can't take it with me. When it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, this, this verse spoke to me very particularly I find it most personally challenging first. We're expecting in the near future to have a little bit of worldly wealth come our way. That doesn't happen. We can't pay the rent for much longer. So we're expecting a little bit of worldly wealth. But Jesus says use it. Obviously it's going to be used for the expenses that we have on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. But the Lord always gives, and when he gives, he gives in abundance. So use it to gain friends for yourselves. In other words, you're a person of the light. You see, remember what he said in the previous sentence. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. Now he's talking to the people of the light. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to me. He's talking to us. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves because they're going to see the light that's in us and they're going to be responding to that light. Use it in the kingdom. That's what he's saying. And they will be responsive to the light, whether to get more light or whether to come into the light in the first instance. I find it very helpful what Paul says at the end of um, his pastoral letter to Timothy about the rich people who were in the church at Ephesus. You see, because whilst it may be harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, nevertheless, there are rich people in the kingdom of God who seemingly are like camels who've gone through the eye of a needle. It's not impossible. Because Paul says to Timothy at the end of chapter 6, first Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, 
but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You see, it's the heart that we have that is the key issue here, not the amount that we have. And at the end of the reading that I just brought to you from the chapter in Luke 16, Jesus is again addressing the Pharisees directly. And he says, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. (laughs) We can't get away from it, can we? God knows our hearts. The issue is not in the amount that we have. It's in the heart that we have. I think Jesus is feeding this into his disciples as he's teaching here. He doesn't make an obvious statement. I find that the two or three verses from Timothy here very helpful to understand what Jesus is actually saying. Command them, he says. Command, I mean, command them. In other words, you can go up to a rich person, I've got a word of the Lord for you. <laughs> People don't like hearing that, do they? I've got a word for the Lord for you. But he says, command. Command them to do good. This is to rich people who are in the fellowship at Ephesus. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. It's a heart. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Jesus says, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Friends, my next birthday, next year, I'll be 77. You begin to think more about eternal dwellings. And this verse really spoke to me because I want to be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Don't you? I couldn't much care less, really, about the earth. I mean, I'm too old for all of that. (laughs) I want to be welcomed into my eternal dwelling. So this is a key for use worldly wealth. If you've got a bit, use it. To gain friends for yourself, let the light pour out of me through generosity. It's not just money. It's what Paul says here to this rich guy in, in the church at Ephesus. There might be quite a few of them. We're sustaining the church in Ephesus by their kindness, by their generosity. It's not the amount, it's the heart. That's what I want. want, The only thing that matters to me, or to you, really, is to be richly welcomed into your eternal dwelling. And it is. You don't want to get there by the skin of your teeth, do you? You can Come on, you can. You can get there by the skin of your teeth. And the Lord just lets you through, but he doesn't even talk to you. You know, wood, hay and stubble, remember all that stuff. But you want to be richly welcomed. I tell you, it's my verse. I've, I've eaten this verse. I'm not letting it go. I want a rich welcome. And then Jesus, of course, here, he said these things. I find that it's a little paragraph if you've got a new... Um, King James. No, not New King, a New International Version. It's a paragraph. And then he goes on to actually explain really what the story he's told is getting at. He tells it straightforwardly. Whereas he's been a little bit sort of... um, He's gone around the reeking a little bit with the previous two or three sentences. (laughs) He does that, doesn't he? Makes you think about it. Whoever can be trusted with very little 
can also be trusted with much. But whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. See, the, the manager had been dishonest, which cost him his job, and he lost his job, and he carried on being dishonest. <laughs> it didn't change him. See, that's his lack of repentance. He couldn't repent, because he was in the world. He wasn't ready to meet with God. He might never have been, I don't know. It didn't change him. It's a lack of integrity, a lack of repentance. So, verse 11, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, manager, who will trust you with true riches? Clearly not the manager. Who will trust you with true riches? I was reading a bit in Philippians, because again... Some of the writings of Paul really throw light on this stuff, don't they? In a way that we can more readily get a hold of. And Paul is saying at the end of Philippians, you know, I've learned the secret of content in all circumstances. Whether I'm well provided for or not. Whether I'm well fed or whether I'm hungry. I'm still content. What a statement that is. And then he, then he makes that lovely affirmation of faith. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's never any limitation on him to do what God wants him to do. Never. He might be a bit hungry. Like Joel, he might be a bit exhausted. Sometimes he will be exhausted. It's not necessarily that you're doing anything in the flesh. Sometimes we're exhausted at ministry. But God lifts us up and he makes, he gives us grace to cope in our circumstances. And sometimes exhaustion is is genuine. We'll trust you with true riches. Paul knew what it was all about. And then at the end of that little passage, he says, my God is able to meet all your need according to his riches and glory. By Christ Jesus. That's true riches. That's true riches, friends. My God is able to meet all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The manager, I haven't got a clue about that. He's locked into the world and that's his system. But we do. We know about that. It's just a refreshment this morning. Who will trust you with true riches? May the Lord be able to trust me and and you with true riches, I pray. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, which you hadn't, who will give you property of your own, which he was not going to get, because you're going to have to live in the client's houses, (laughs) at least for a season. Maybe he will repent during that season, who knows? (laughs) Let's think the positive. He certainly didn't end the story that Jesus was giving to us. Now here's a bit that made me think about worship. Remember, there's no integrity in the world. There's no repentance in the world. And there's no worship. Or at least, to the extent that there is, it's in deception. And Jesus here contrasts that with 
mammon. And this is what I like the bit about unrighteous mammon. No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Interesting, isn't it? Then the Old Testament, the gods are always the gods of Baal, Ashtoreth, all of these things, the, the, the secular orgies that the people got into because of the worship of Moab. It was all this sort of stuff. But the main God that Jesus focuses on in, the, in his humanity and in the teaching that he gives to the disciples is money, is mammon. And how true that is for us in our materialistic world. That the main God we have to fight against, and I believe it goes on, it doesn't stop, is our own lack of generosity, our own fear, whatever the future might hold, and our tendency to hold on to that which the Lord would have us give. It's always a challenge, it won't go away. That's what you, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. You interpret that as you will. But when it's gone, Jesus' desire for all of us was that we would be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So he, he, he's changed his focus now, and he's really thinking about these Pharisees who are standing here or sitting here with the legs crossed and their arms folded and they're really again everything he's trying to put across and he says the Lord knows your hearts money is your God and that is whom mammon is a God is deifying materialistic well, well-being to the extent that it minimises the reality of God himself who alone provides these things. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. The Pharisees who loved money, see, that's the issue, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And so whatever worship they offered was meaningless. Was meaningless. The prophet Amos talks about the songs that the people sang at his time. And he said, those songs are just not acceptable to God. I wonder how many times I've sung songs in such... Alan was just challenging us then about the way we sing songs. And it's a valuable challenge. I wonder how many times I've sung songs and I've liked the song, I've liked the melody. I've just sung it, but it hasn't really cut into my spirit. But the Lord wants to challenge our hearts, doesn't he? Everything he says is a challenge to the human heart. Everything he says is a challenge to the way the world is. Just as much today as it was 2,000 years ago during the years of his 
human ministry. How remarkable. So the world cannot display real integrity. People live in fear. They live in fear of the future. They live in fear of their own frailty. Of the possibility in these days of disease. Shall we be vacked or not vacked? Well, friends, I've had a couple, I must be honest. (laughs) I don't think it's the mark of the beast. You'll have to judge that this morning. But there will come a time, and I believe it'll be an economic issue, when we will be challenged most deeply as to which side we're on and to whether or not we're going to take note of the teaching of our Saviour and really be ostracised from any sort of economic prosperity. Looks like it. And then we've learned to trust him anyway. So we'll do. we won't we won't be taking the mark. Praise God. But the last thought is the first sentence I think that I want to drop in you thinking this morning. There's a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. See, God gives us his possessions. None of us have any limits from doing God's will. Paul said, I have nothing, but I possess all things. As as he said in that other place, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. None of us have any reason for not being able to do the will of God, because he'll make every provision available for us to do that. The last thing I want to do is to waste my manager's or my boss's possessions. <laughs> my God is able to meet all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for that expressed faith of the Apostle. We thank you, Lord, that if we're in your kingdom, then we lack nothing. We're just as certain as was David in writing that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And Lord, as we've listened somewhat to the teaching of Jesus this morning, and as that teaching comforts us, enlightens us, but also challenges us. Lord God, may we discern for us what is right in these days and have our minds renewed that we might in all things know what your good will is, your good, your pleasing, and your perfect will. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was just thinking of a song to use. Alan asked me about that. And I hadn't sung for some time. Graham Kendrick's song was, I think it was the song of the 80s. Restore, O Lord, the honour of your name. And it's really a prayer. It's a prayer for the kingdom of God to move in these days. It's a prayer for the church to be turned from her compromise to a place of spiritual responsiveness 
and I thought it would be appropriate to finish our worship with that song this morning.